You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. Have you seen the excellent TV series Silo on Apple Plus? It's a science fiction series. I won't describe anything more about it, but I love it. My whole family loves it. And I am glad to have the writer and creator of the initial novel of the series, Hugh Howie, on the podcast today. I've known Hugh for about a decade. Amazon, about a decade ago, flew Hugh, me, and a bunch of other self-published writers who were doing very well with self-publishing, flew us out to Santa Monica, uh, we all had dinner. We all talked about writing and publishing. And the next day, Jeff Bezos showed us all a Kindle Fire. He launched the Kindle Fire that day. And it was a fun time. I got to know Hugh. He came on the podcast in 2014. Hugh has such a great story. He was initially just working in bookstores, and he was a roofer, and he worked on boats. He was writing science fiction novel after science fiction novel and, and other novels as well. And just like... I found when I self-published Choose Yourself, he found when he self-published Wool, which eventually became the TV series Silo, he found this is the way to go. And we describe why in the podcast, but we talk about writing, self-publishing, science fiction, the TV series Silo and TV in general, optimism versus pessimism, AI, 
and so many other interesting things. He's a very smart guy filled with wisdom. Here's Hugh Howie. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. So, Hugh, I'm just curious, and I was thinking this as I was watching Silo. At what point, when you first watched, you probably watched, you know, many iterations of the first show, but when did you feel, oh, I'm in really good hands. They're going to take care of this story. It was actually on the set. I First of all, I visited the set while they were shooting in London. We watched a take, and I looked at the folks around me, the the writer on set, who was uh, Eric that day, and the director and the DP, and they all looked at each other with kind of wide eyes. And then Eric looked at me, and he was like, whoa, this is good. And they, these guys have all worked on really big stuff. And I, you know, I have a hard time telling from performances and dailies and even the the final cuts without all the the CGI and the, the music and the sound, all that stuff adds so much to it. But these guys could tell just from the takes that they were getting that day that something special was happening. And that was the first time I thought, man, if these guys are impressed, then something nice can come from this. I mean, it's, and I'm not going to give away any spoilers or anything, but really right in the first few minutes, I started wondering about this question because it was just beautiful, just the world creation. And it's so believable and all the characters seem so fleshed out. Yeah, I mean, no one's just reading lines here. Everyone got so into it. Morton told him we got, you know, an Oscar caliber film director to shoot the pilot. And he read the book and he just fell in love with the story. And he and I would just geek out. Like he was so passionate about it. And so he would go to every single department and check what they were doing and say, no, these are the materials they would use. And we need to rethink this uh, logo design and what kind of furniture design were they like? He got so into the details, as, as you should as a director. And Graham Yost, the showrunner, was the same. Like he was totally involved in all the character motivations and, and what was really happening. And then that really went down to Rebecca, who dove into her character, David and Rashida. Like everyone was reading the books and the scripts and there's a level of a commitment involvement that was really exciting to watch. And, you know, if I remember, this was like an accidental series in some sense. Like I remember reading, you know, initially Wool, which people don't realize it was a collection of books. Now it's one book. But it was really like you made Wool 1. There was like Wool 1 through 4, I think. I, I forget how many were in that first quote-unquote series, which is now a book called Silo and which became a TV show. But the first Wool, you intended that as a one-off. You didn't even know there was going to be like a series. But then everybody was writing in. I mean, it's got 37,000 reviews. So everyone was writing in. So he said, oh, okay, I'll just continue this story. That's exactly what happened. I, I had the idea as a novel but I was so busy with other books that uh, you know I had like just a handful of people wanting sequels, and that was all the demand I had at the time. So I was just writing more books in that series. But I had these other novels I wanted to get out, and I'd written a novelette called The Plagiarist. It kind of fell in love with this fifteen thousand word kind of length. It's about a fifty page book, which you can't market in the old world, but with the Kindle and print on demand. It doesn't matter how long something is, you know, you can, you could publish a haiku if you want, you know, the challenge is getting someone to read it or pay for it or recommend it to others. And so I took the idea 
uh, this novel and condense it down into a much shorter story. Publish it for 99 cents on the Kindle store and completely forgot about it. I went back to writing my next novel. And that was the story that I don't know how to explain it. You know, there's a lot of luck involved. It's like, why does one uh, Facebook post go viral and another one not? Yes, there's a lot of unpredictability in that. But would you agree? Like, I, I kind of advise people who are writing that actually quantity is more important than quality. It really is. I'm, I'm not saying there's any, you as I've read a lot of your books and it's all high quality, but you have to put a lot out there because there's so much unpredictability in everything we do and there's so much competition. But if you do put a lot out there, something's going to hit. Every published work is a lottery ticket. You know, sitting at home and like putting wax and polishing your single lottery ticket to make it the most beautiful lottery ticket possible doesn't really increase your odds as much as trying to get 20 lottery tickets out there. To your point, like the quality has to be good, but I see people like taking that one, that first book they write and rewriting it, rewriting it and polishing it and promoting it and trying to get something to take hold. And their time may be better spent hitting publish, forgetting about it, write the next thing. You're going to get better. You're going to find your voice. You're going to experiment with different genres. You'll find a character that right now doesn't exist because you're not giving them a chance to come to life. So yeah, I've, I've always said that to people like the best marketing, the best promotion is publishing your next story. I want to get into the self-publishing and how you kind of started out because it's such this, this indie, almost Quentin Tarantino-ish type of story. But I just want to mention one of my favorite novels by you, I think you wrote this maybe before, Will, was uh, Hurricane. Yeah. <laughs> it's just about this like teenage boy stuck in a hurricane, so he has no access to social media, and then what happens to him. And I just thought it was a very beautiful story. But Thanks, man. You were working in a bookstore, right? And then you started writing and self-publishing books. Yeah, I've, kind of, I've worked in bookstores since college, but uh, after I spent a bit of a my... 20s, basically working on yachts and doing a lot of sailing and serving as a captain on big power boats. And when I got out of that, I finally started getting some novels finished. And I was doing a signing for my very first novel at a bookstore, and the manager was looking for a part-time help. And it seemed like a perfect gig to allow me to have time to write and to be, you know, plugged into the industry. But uh, I wasn't really thinking about making a living at it. I was just super excited to be writing things to their conclusion and having a handful of eager readers. Since I worked at the bookstore, I could like shelve my books with the other books and just right. have them sitting on the shelf in one bookstore. And that was it. That's how it all started. You know, just um, I had this kind of daily routine of writing and working in the bookstore and publishing. And and when you say publishing, you were, you were self-publishing on Amazon. Like that's actually how you and I met was Amazon flew a bunch of self-published writers out to Santa Monica and we all had dinner and then, Jeff Bezos launched the Kindle Fire, but uh, you were a big proponent of self-publishing right from the beginning. And what were your initial thoughts on it? Like a lot of people at that time, this is like 2012, 2011, 2013. At that time, there was still, I, I don't think it exists now. It still exists a little bit. There was a stigma to self-publishing, kind of like vanity publishing, even though it's not that at all. Yeah, it's changed a lot, boy, since since you and I met. Um, I, think I, I think my first self-published book was like 2009, maybe. Huh. The Kindle had just come out like the year before. KDP was really brand new. And it's just, again, more luck. I was just starting to publish at a time when these tools were becoming available. My first book got picked up by a small press. 
So I tried the traditional route on a, on a small scale, and the tools they used to publish were tools that were available to anybody. So with the second book, I just decided to do it on my own and never really looked back. My initial thoughts about self-publishing were, I had no idea. Like I was asking people on forums, what do you guys think about that? And everyone tried to make it as a writer on these um, like traditional writing forums said to be the death of my career. Don't do it. You're an idiot. Um, real authors don't do this. You need a career. You need to get an agent. My publisher, my first book, when I wrote them asking to buy the rights back and told them I was going to publish on my own, they said, this would be the end of your career. It's a huge mistake. They So every... I didn't have anyone telling me this was a good idea, nobody. And that's why when I started having some success, my publishing career was half of what I was doing. The other half was me encouraging people and telling them like, look, you might not make a living at this and you have to get lucky, but there's nothing stopping you. Like the things that they, people say can never happen, all that's untrue. And those things are also unlikely if you try to go the traditional route. So I really wanted to help like lower that stigma and get more people to publish rather than frustrate themselves with all the gatekeepers or learning how to write a query letter and all the other like really crazy obstacles around the publishing. Yeah. And look, I don't, I don't want to put down the publishing industry, but when you say, okay, if someone says, oh, mainstream publishing is the only way to go, those people who are picking and choosing books, they're no better or worse than anybody. They, they're just readers like everyone else. So why not let the le- readers decide by just uploading your book to Amazon? And it's not just a Kindle book. It's a paperback, hardcover, audiobook. It could look like every other book. No one knows the difference. Yeah, exactly. Um, and no one asked you, like, has anyone ever asked you, hey man, who was your, who was your publisher? Well, you know, it's funny, even beyond that, publishers think that readers care about imprints and, you know, agents and authors and people in publishing, they care about like, you know, who the, the imprints are within publishers. And, and they think it's super important, but readers just don't know and don't care. Like, is the story good? They care about cover art. They, I think a lot of self-published books, my early books included, really shoot themselves uh, in the foot with really bad cover art. Yeah. So there are things like in the packaging that are really important that publishers can help with. But what I, what I heard were, were like, here are, the, here are the things that are not possible if you self-publish. You'll never get into bookstores, which... Once Wool took off, like it hit the New York Times list as a self-published book and Barnes and Noble was stocking it, which was insane because this was like printed by Amazon. And they were stocking it simply because there were enterprising bookstore managers who were sick of the 10th person that day saying, you know, do you have this book? And you don't want to just say like, go buy it on Amazon. They could buy the print on demand version and make a couple of bucks or they could make no bucks, you know? So there were all these things that were supposedly impossible, like you know, you'll never get a film deal. You'll never land an agent. You'll never get reviewed in a in a serious paper or magazine. Like all the things you couldn't do. And what I what I realized looking around is that no one had even tried these things. That everyone had believed all the the naysayers, and so it was a self fulfilling prophecy. If everyone says you can't do it, no one tries, and then of course no one does it. I found that along the way that agents and publishers now almost look at the self published books as sort of that's where they're finding their books. Like agents contacted me after I started self-publishing because then they see what sells. Yeah, it's the slush pile. Th- what's funny is I that was one of the questions I asked. There's a forum back in the day called Absolute Right. I'm not sure if they're still around or not, but um, it was uh, a place to go for really terrible writing advice uh, because everything they told me was the opposite of what happened. And really early on, I said I, I said exactly what you're, you've discovered. I was like, you know, I think eventually self-publishing is going to be a place where 
agents will go to find uh, talent because these are people proving that they're going to work hard. They're going to finish what they start. Uh, they have some publishing acumen and all these other things and they can read samples for free. And everyone, I actually got like so bullied for the, for putting that out there that, and trying to defend myself. They just like, like, you're not welcome here anymore. Like this is too heretical. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me actually was getting, you know, kind of seeing how vehemently, passionately wrong people could be. It really liberated me and allowed me to try things I think that I wouldn't have tried otherwise if people would have been a little less ugly about their pronouncements. And you know, it allow, that also allows you to get to what we were earlier talking about, about quantity. Like you can't, if you're publishing a book every two years with a mainstream publisher, you're never going to get quantity. But if you could, you know, write a book in a few months and then put it out there, you, you can start the next book and, and so on. Totally. You know, people don't realize Fifty Shades of Grey was originally self-published. Yeah. And then before it was picked up. Yeah, it, it blew up. And um, well, there were, there were quite a few, like The Martian started yeah. as serialized on, on Andy Weir's blog. You know, now I think that's why the stigma is falling. Now it's not just you can point to one person and say, look, here's the exception. Now success is happening from all kinds of places. There are people who get deals because of their blogs or their Twitter feeds, or it's just we're looking for entertainment. We're not looking for people who survived a very specific path. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats 
to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You ran a site for a while that you were looking at the statistics of self-publishing versus mainstream uh, publishing. I don't know if you still run that site, but you had some data that, you know, if you look at all the self-published reviews, like rankings, star rankings, they tended to be on average higher ranked than the books published by mainstream publishers and, and similar for sales ranks. They tended to be, have a higher sales rank on average than the mainstream uh, books. Yeah, well, uh, I was actually approached by someone who's a data scientist uh, who was also trying to figure out how to publish his first novel in order to make a decision. He, he realized, like I did, there was really no good advice out there, no strong data. So he created a spider that crawled the entire Amazon book listings. Like It used each URL for recommended books to crawl the entire catalog. He could use data pulled from the book listing pages to figure out who published it where it was priced, what its ranking was, and then pulled a bunch of authors to figure out, okay, because he could even pull, like I had, I had a number one best-selling book on Amazon for a while and I could tell him like, here's how much you have to sell in a week to reach that ranking. And it creates a very beautiful logarithmic curve of sales to, um, to rank. So he was able to figure out how much each of these books was earning, who they were published by, and then combine them into cohorts. And the self-publishing cohort was out-earning any of the, the major publishers, you know, there's a, there's a, you can really get granular with what that means because there's a lot more self-published books. Um, there's tons of ways to interpret the data, but the one thing that we were hearing was that no one was making a living with self-published books and we we're able to point to people. And now we know, like we know people on YouTube, there are people making tens of millions of dollars a year reviewing toys on, on YouTube and doing things that just don't sound like they'd be profitable. 
Yeah. And that's because it's all ha- happening kind of behind the scenes. And he helped uncover that. And I was just there to, to host the data and help him interpret it and, and try to use my uh, limited soapbox to give it a, a broader audience. And then, you know, after Wool became such a big hit, one of the number one science fiction books of all time, you know, many people were referring to it as, when did the idea of, I know initially you were thinking of it as, in terms of making a movie, and really Scott approached you. What was, what was the story there? Like, how did the journey towards Silo, the TV show, begin? I started getting, I think the first um, person to reach out about the option, it happened before the book was even complete. It was like after part three was out or something. Someone from BBC America reached out and said, hey, I want to option this. And that was interesting to me because it wasn't even finished. But once I got an agent, Kristen Nelson, she linked me up with her LA co-agent, the person who does all the book adaptations, uh, Cassie Evashevsky, who's huge in book-to-film adaptations. She did all the Twilight hmm. books and big successes in that realm. She sent it around, and, and there was all this hype because it hit, hit the New York Times list as a self-published book. They're writing about it everywhere. And it was going to go to auction. Had some major producers interested. And really, Scott and Steve Zalian came in and said, we don't want this to go to auction. We want to preempt it. And made a great offer with 20th Century Fox backing them. And it was just like too good to be true. Like I, I assumed nothing would ever get made. And I thought, well, if I can throw Ridley's name around, it will help with book sales. It will help with foreign deals. Like that's a guarantee. And so I kind of took the guarantee rather than take a chance with, with some producers who probably had a better chance of it getting made. Can you say what happened? Like what? what? Yeah, they, they had it for like five years. We, they, they had the ability to renew it as often as they wanted. And every time they renewed it, you know, they'd have another director, another script written. Each time it came up for renewal, I just kept asking like, hey, if it's not going to get made this year, I'd love to have the rights back. They didn't have to do that. They could have either paid the purchase price, which wasn't a godly sum of money, or they could have optioned it indefinitely and waited until the right time. But to their credit, I mean, I, I love these guys. I had a really good relationship with all the people involved on those teams. And they really felt like they wanted to see this made too. And if they were going to do it, they were willing to let me have the rights back. So amazing move on their part. When the rights came back, we, my team of agents and I like just had conversations. Do we want to go this, the film route again, or do we want to try TV? And at the time, TV was becoming the prestige thing it is now. And there's more money in film. Like you can earn percentage of the back end and all kinds of stuff if it gets big. Uh, but I've never been, I've never made decisions based on money, really, especially at this point in my career. I didn't have to worry about that. So I was like, look, let's do TV. I think we'll make a better product if it's done well. We can expand the story instead of truncating it. And so we took it out and, and Amazon, AMC, and Apple both were really interested. And it came down to those three parties. And I ended up going with AMC because Apple didn't even have a service out yet. I was having to sign NDAs to even discuss this with them. It was all super secret at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they never gave up. Kept calling AMC and saying, hey, what, how are you guys doing with this? Can we partner? Can we partner? And AMC finally asked me, like, hey, what do you think about combining forces? And I was like, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And that's the deal we have now. Like AMC helped all the story development in the writer's room and get the show going. And Apple came in and said, we want to, we want to create this and we want it on our channel. And I got kind of the best of both worlds. So how does it work? Like you mentioned how, you know, people don't make as much money in TV as movies. And it used to be the TV model. Everybody would make money because of syndication. So if a show ran for five seasons, then lesser known channels or local channels 
would buy the rights in that area for the show and air it like at 5 p.m. forever. And the actors would make money every time the show aired. With these streaming networks, that just doesn't happen anymore. So what what is the model of TV now? I have no clue. <laughs> I have no clue either. It's so weird because like they they don't share data. Like this is true. I think of all the big tech streamers like um, Netflix and Amazon and Apple. We don't know like Nielsen ratings on any of this stuff. We see their rankings on their like what's hot, but it's all relative. There's no like uh, objective measure of how many people are tuning in. So you don't get paid per view like on YouTube or Spotify. It's you know, very, you know, kind of a one-time fee and that's it pretty much. Yeah. Different studios are trying to do things to incentivize. and But the way it, it looks to me, it's the top showrunners, the people who have all-around deals make these mega blockbuster deals and everyone else is just kind of fighting for whatever they can get with each which the, each individual deal. And that's what a lot of the writer's strike right now is trying to deal with because like there's so much confusion right now how to make a living at this and, and people trying to sort that out. But the flip side is, I would think there's like thousands and thousands of shows now. And like as opposed to like when we were all kids, there were four shows. It it seems like every writer and actor must have a job now, but it's just not true. Like how come everybody's not acting in a, everybody who wants to be an actor should be able to get a job. And that doesn't seem to be the case. Like are there more actors than we all thought? But yeah, I think so. And also, uh, you know, the, the actors, who are popular get all the roles. You know, it's yeah. uh, it's amazing. You, you can shoot three films and be in, you know, in a year and be in two TV shows concurrently. Some of my favorite actors are, are getting those kinds of gigs where it's like every time you turn around, it's like, wait, The Mandalorian is also starring in The Last of Us? Like, yeah. these are like two of the hottest shows on TV right now and it's the same actor in both of them. And oh, and by the way, two films uh, in the same year. So... Uh, I think there's some of that, like the people, the winners win big and everyone else is kind of grinding. That seems to be true in all entertainment fields. It's true for authors. People used to make a living as studio writers, but it wasn't that many people making that living. And I think there are more people getting a piece of the pie now, but all of them are having to like hustle in order to survive. And I can't say definitively which one is better. I would rather have more people be involved even if it means people are making less money. But I do think the people at the very top, like it's crazy what CEO pay is. And that's not an entertainment industry problem. That's a capitalism problem. But no one is adding $200 million worth of value to their company in one year. Nobody. It's interesting because to some extent, your story, your your silo story is initially about powerful, mysterious entities at the top somehow controlling things for reasons we don't know why. And to some extent, and this is true for a lot of dystopian literature, that's a reflection of the lives we live right now. And I, I wonder how much you were thinking about that while you were while you were writing, uh, you know, the original Wall. When you put it like that, it sounds like I was writing about the my publishing adventures. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's true for every industry, probably. There are yeah. people at the top who are making decisions, who are trying to make decisions about our lives, and our job is to not let them succeed. Right before I wrote. Well, I had spent a couple of years working as a roofer in uh, Virginia, and it's one of the hardest jobs you can ever have. Like even other trades look up at the roofers, literally, but uh, look up at them with just like pity almost. Like, man, I'm glad that's not me. Like shoveling snow off of a roof, working in 100 degree heat. It's just, it's a brutal, brutal job. 
and I, I, I moved from that job. Before that, I was working on these yachts, making like six figures driving boats around with zero living expenses. And it was a transition from a job that's completely superfluous, like no one needs a yacht, to a job that is the most critical, which is providing shelter for people. And my pay was like a fraction. But what I, know, what I, what I realized is my like happiness and my feeling of self-worth was so much higher. And I think that shift in occupations played a huge role in the structure of wool and who the heroes are and who the villains are, and which, which is still messy and complex. But I really found purpose in doing a job that paid a lot less, but provided a, a real service rather than being a glorified bus driver. And then what happened like later when there was one point where you basically gave up everything and just sailed around the world? For years. I mean, gave up everything. It sounds like I gained everything. I, um, right. Yeah, so, that, that could yeah, be. Yeah. Boat, boating is like, was my first passion. Even before I made it as a, as a writer, I lived on a boat and, and sailed around the Bahamas and just enjoyed the vagabond lifestyle and the, the joy of traveling with all of your things with you to beautiful, tropical, watery places. It's like RVs, but with a better view usually. And the whole time, I was kind of working in yachts. I was dreaming of getting my own boat and sitting around the world one day. And the writing career just facilitated that. So as soon as I felt like I needed, you know, some time to tell more stories and fill up on new adventures, I put the writing on hold and, and went on a big sailing adventure. Did you take time off from writing? Yeah, I was still writing. I was, um, I was publishing like short stories. I put out a collection of short stories. I was writing some nonfiction self-help stuff that I, I don't really market or promote, but... The, the Wayfinder series? Yeah. I've got people still email me every day, like, when's another one coming out of that? And um, like, I found a following, even though I was just doing it to try to organize my own thoughts on some things. And I was helping edit anthologies, you know, to kind of empower other authors and, and contributing to those. So I was staying busy, but um, I was nowhere near as prolific with the novels as I was before I took off. Do you think you kind of lose youthful exuberance and energy, you know, as the decades go by? I, I have not. I've just put it to a different place. But now, I mean, before we got on, I'm, I'm working on publishing like four different things this morning. Like uh, my writing and publishing career is just at the same level of like unbelievable overdrive as it was when uh, Wool took off. Okay. So uh, for me, it's just the TV stuff was keeping me busy for a while. I was reading a lot of scripts and writing features and pilots and stuff, and that was fun. But now I'm like working on finishing up the Sand trilogy, and I've got some children's picture books coming out and all kinds of weird stuff. In the TV industry, when you say you were reading scripts, like were you assisting other shows or were you pitching shows? Pitching shows, um, reading. Uh, we had two books get go into like production on back to back days in the middle of the pandemic, which is so weird. And um, like just yesterday, I got another hour-long pilot sent to me about uh, based on the plagiarist uh, story that I mentioned earlier. So I've got to read and give notes on that. And it's like 10 episodes and they do 10 revisions. It's a lot of reading. Like every time you got to read and see what's changed and give notes and feedback. But that's good that they're involving you in the process. Like often they don't involve the original writer in the process. Yeah, I've been very lucky in that regard. And I've, I've got a good, good relationship with the people in the room. And I, it's funny, like watching the first two episodes, I see places where I didn't, I, I thought the motivations were unclear and those like a little 
um, not enough tension in some decisions and gave some notes. And the, the final product that we see now has like a couple of key moments that I think are so much better just because I threw out a few ideas that someone else liked and, and they incorporated. So it, it makes a difference. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I was reading one of your Facebook posts recently, and you've been, like, like everybody, you've been playing with ChatGPT and AI, and you had this beautiful post about you asked ChatGPT to create a religion. And I found its response totally fascinating. Like, I loved the religion it came up with. Can you describe that? Yeah. Uh, harmonism, I think. Yeah. Because it came up with the name and yeah. uh, the holidays and everything and, and even some, some songs. I think this is the thing that's going to surprise people about AI. I think its greatest value to humanity is going to be its wisdom. My wife said something really clever to me the other day because we were looking at kind of the ethics of, of AI. And she pointed out that people have a really hard time being human. And I thought that was a great insight. Like whether you're a teacher or, you know, guidance counselor, a therapist, the people that you need to be like there for you, a judge in in court, like I, I need your humanity. It's difficult for them to give that all the time because of energy and nutrition and hormones and exhaustion, and they're dealing with their own stuff. These AIs are unflappable and their mental muscularity shows up when they are giving you life advice and coaching you. Like they just never give up on you and they never get frustrated. And I think we're going to find that they are better at being good than we are. And I, I think their smartness will be less interesting to me than their, their ethical excellence. I, w- I wonder why that is because if you break it down, like what ChatGPT is, is a collection of basically all text ever written by humanity, including tweets, Reddit posts, books, articles, everything from the beginning of time till 2021. And so that includes the good, the bad, the ugly, everything ever written. And then of course, its responses were kind of honed for years by, you know, many millions of man years of, of manual labor saying that's a good response that's not a good response so it sort of learned what types of response were considered good i wonder where where was able to emphasize on on the wisdom as opposed to all the crappy things that are on the internet we see all day long i think that's because most things on the internet are good most people are trying to be good um and uh, even the people who are like griefers and trolls like um, most of them want to be loved and want to have good things in their life. And so the, the bad is just drowned out. And 
even bad people understand that most people want to be good. So you, like their bias towards that, it just bleeds into everything that they write. Like they, they know, Hey, I'm being a troll. Like they'll admit to their bad behavior while they're doing it. And that just gives more data to uh, the AI, which is like, don't be like this. Like they're even bad people are training the AI. So I think the idea that it's all getting, we take all these colors and swirl them and we get this brown poop looking mixture isn't how AI is actually working. It's we're telling it what's good and what's bad. And so it's sorting it out. It's creating this rainbow. And when we ask it for wisdom, it goes to the, the, the wisdom palette and says, here's what's good. And I know this because there's this other bad stuff there. So I don't think it, I don't think it works as like a, a blend. I think it works more discreetly than that. And it's not just combining all of our words, just combining all of our hopes and dreams and ambitions and positivity. And you could distill that out of it in a, a pure essence that like you saw in that post, like my wife and I reading that in real time as I was writing it, we were just like, whoa, this is, this is like the best of us right here. And, and it will just keep being the best of us as much as you ask it to be. And I think people are going to find a lot of solace in that. Yeah, no, that was, that was a, such an interesting concept. I really have thought about it quite a bit since, since you wrote that post. You know, I wanted to ask just a little about technique because a lot of your books involve not only intense characterization and plot, but world building. When you go into a, a book like What Became Silo, what happens first? You have a, a plot, a premise, a character. Do you know the whole story beforehand, before you write the first sentence? Like, what's, what's going on in your head? I think that a lot of things pull in the same direction concurrently. It's like, a, it's like riding a dog sled. You know, you've got all these different things and some are character and some are world building. You keep pushing each like one forward and then it pulls the other one forward. I generally have an idea like for Silo, it was we believe our screens uh, reflect reality. And what's that doing to our psyches? Those screens are, are biased towards bad news the local news, the social media. There's just a lot of like, the world is terrible information out there. And we're drawn to that because it's a survival mechanism. And what is that doing to us? So that was the big question. And then you start thinking, well, God, maybe there's some people who maybe can't destroy that in humans. Maybe humans are born to be optimistic and hope. And what, what would that look like in a society where everyone's told the outside world is terrible? So you start thinking about Allison and Holston and people who would be like, you know, I don't believe this. I'm going to go see for myself. And when I, when I try to piece together where that came from, you know, I just sailed into Cuba in, back in like the late 90s before it was open. And what I found there was completely different from the kind of, I'm going to call it propaganda because that's basically what it is. It's politically motivated misinformation. And I was like, whoa, if this was wrong, what else is wrong? So I was kind of like Allison and Holson in that way. I broke out of the silo and saw something uh, with my own eyes. So that was a part of it. But then while I was writing it, I thought, well, there's a good ending and a bad ending. And I had just lost my dog and I was in a very, as bad as sad as I've ever been in the middle of writing. And that colored kind of where I took things. So it's hard to tease out. There's like so many things in, at play. But I'll say, if I don't know the theme and I don't know the ending of my story, it's really difficult for me to be passionate about it. I, I just got the ending of the next book in the sand series um, this week and my energy for writing and writing it deeply and well just goes 10x because I know exactly where the story's ending. I know what the theme is. 
I can start working that theme into every scene. All that's super important to me. How consciously do you think of things like, oh, am I following the arc of a hero? Does this chapter have a cliffhanger? Like how much, how much like just hardcore technique do you think about when you're, when you're writing? I don't, I, I, I've studied all the technique. Um, uh, you know, I, I love the hero's journey. I think it's a great framework for understanding uh, character, but I think you absorb a lot of that from all the books that you write or read over the years and TV shows you watch, comic books, everything. Right. Um, so you get this idea of like, okay, they need to go from a world they're comfortable in to a new world. They need to like uh, have resistance to that and cross a threshold. And we get the whole reluctant warrior trope from watching Braveheart and, and a million other things. We, you know, we love Star Wars, which has the, you know, the clearest probably telling of that, that hero's journey. Um, so you absorb all those things and you're like, I don't know why it works, but it works. But, you know, when you took, dive into Joseph Campbell and really try to understand it all and read evolutionary psychology and, and look in the history of us as storytellers, you can really geek out about all this stuff. But I think he gets to where you know it all and then you can just kind of do it and make sure you're following certain principles and, and, and using those things to your advantage. And for, for cliffhangers, I always know when I'm writing a chapter, I'll write, I'll write one line and I'm like, that's the zinger. Even if the chapter's too short, okay, I need to go you know, add a little bit to this scene ahead, but I just wrote the perfect ending to this chapter. I've got to end it there and move to the next chapter. It's funny you said about with Silo, with the screen, how it sort of um, mimics the screens we see, which have just reflect all this bad news. And again, it's just a metaphor because it's they're not seeing news on, on this screen. They're seeing something else. But it's funny because as you were saying this, I didn't think that when I read the book, but I did viscerally think about this when I was watching the two episodes that have been released so far. So it's interesting how the visual medium kind of changes the way you look at a story. It's so different. People are picking apart, like the stairs don't look the way I thought, or the clothing's not exactly what I assumed. I find it fascinating that we get distracted by those kinds of details when like the DNA of the story is very different from those kinds of things. But the visual medium does so much heavy lifting. It's incredible how... You don't need words in a lot of scenes. You just need two characters looking at each other in a certain way. And it's impossible to write that in a book as powerfully as two super talented actors with the costume, the makeup, lighting, the camera choice, you know, what lens you're using. Like all those things play this huge role. And it's magical to watch it happen on set, how so many people are involved in just getting that scene. We think it's like, because we all shoot with our phones and we you know, grew up with camcorders and we're like, oh, they're just basically doing this. But it's so much more involved than that. And when it's done well, it's spectacular, really. Particularly some of the scenes, like, and this is a, an easy scene to describe. This was in the trailer. But the scene when they send the lights up, this uh, so beautiful. And you get a sense of all the work put into, just in that one moment right there, you get a sense of all the work put into creating this world. It actually seems like a pretty cool world to live in, <laughs> the style. I'm, right now, so far in the series, it seems like a nonstop party there. Yeah, I think that's important too. Like I, everyone is talking about this as this post-apocalyptic dystopian thing, but the silo, the idea is a utopia, but it's, you know, as you peel back, like what's the purpose of that utopia, you can get into kind of what's, what, what could be wrong with the place. But I, I love watching, you know, everyone's like the rebels are the good guys. I know that for sure, because that's how all these stories work. And I was kind of laugh at these, um, like really simple answers when people are first starting to read the books or now they're watching the show, 
because the reality is much more complex. Like I still don't know. I love having conversations about the story with people who have read it because to me, I, I still don't know where I fall in a lot of these questions. And I, I like that. Well, are, would you say you're in general an optimist or a pessimist about society right now? I'm an optimist, but I'm a realist as well. Like I think it's incredible what we've done. Like uh, I, I have a kind of a, a very biological view of everything. I just see the earth is this incredible like wet ball that was in the, the Goldilocks zone of a really stable star and stable system. A type of mold grew on it. The diversity of life that arose from that is incredible. And I worry about being egocentric and putting humanity at the center of anything, but there's nothing more interesting to me that we've discovered in the universe than the human brain. Like, it's just fascinating. All the things we built, like you and I are communicating through miracles of technology. Yeah. And we pulled that all out of mud and fashioned it together. I say we, you and I did almost none of that work, but we're using it. I, I wouldn't even know how to do it. Like, exactly. If you, you could do more than, than me though. Like you were a roofer, you were a yacht captain. You, Not much more. If you went a thousand years back in time, what would you be able to do to prevent them from killing you? Like, how would you be useful? I would die of a tooth infection. Like I would be. Oh useful. yeah, we would all die of a tooth infection. That's for sure. But so that's what's so bizarre. Like we, like we are just this the most interesting thing that we know of in the universe. Am I an optimist or a pessimist? Like, how did we get this far? And and we seem to be progressing in the right direction. Like we're just lifting people out of poverty. We're increasing all kinds of measures of health. Like are we heading towards this utopian singularity? I don't think so. Like, I think the things that got us this far are going to backfire on us in a lot of ways. I think as soon as we develop the technology that could end all human life, someone's going to use it because there's just that much diversity of people. Like if we all had a button, you know, that woke up with one morning and pushing it killed every human, like I give us a nanosecond, you know, as soon as people read the instructions on the button, that's as long as we would last. Because there's someone out there who would just love to end it and take everyone with them. I mean, don't you think that technology is probably already here? Like, not even counting like nuclear power, which is hard to make, but like biotech is increasing so exponentially. I mean, it's like so much faster than the, the speed by which computers uh, increased. Yeah. You can make, we've seen it, you can make in a lab a virus that affects the entire world. Yeah, I think we don't. I, I think the natural viruses, well, you couldn't wipe out all of humans with anything that a virus could do because they either work so slowly that we adapt or too fast that they burn out. But um, I think if we ever like had programmable biological viruses where start infecting people and hide so no one knows it's there and wait 100 years so that it's a generational type of virus and then on this date, turn the switch off on everybody, like it would take something that advanced, which we don't have yet, to pull it off. Because I've been, I've been in places in the world where nuclear holocaust wouldn't, where they would never even know it happened. A huge meteor impact is so unlikely because Jupiter does such a great job of kind of scrubbing the solar system. So all the traditional ways and global warming isn't going to be enough. Like the sun's going to have to go nova or you know turns a red giant before all life here is extinguished. Am I an optimist? I don't think we'll get off this planet and go live somewhere else. I think life on Mars is the dumbest idea I've ever heard of. Heard of. So I think I think our days are are limited, but in the meantime, we we've had Ursula K. Le Guin and and Shakespeare and Picasso and like how many priceless 
works of creativity out of people that were just trying to like find fruit and trees for the for most of our existence. Like, how do you how can you not be optimistic about that? Very true. And on that, Hugh, congratulations again on Silo, my whole family. Because I because we were having this podcast, I said we all have to watch this these two episodes. It was homework. Everybody's like, oh, do we really have to watch? And I said, yes. And they're, they're all like, when's the next episode coming out? So everyone's super excited. I know this is getting great reviews and it's it's like surpassing Ted Lasso or whatever else is on Apple. I, I subscribe to Apple Plus to watch Silo. So I don't even know what else is on Apple Plus. Oh, man. But, you've got a lot to catch up on. Well, I know I, I did watch at one point Severance because I, I joined earlier and then lost my subscription, but I watched one show, Severance. But again, congratulations. This is so amazing to have seen this progress through the past decade and, and plus your journey in, in self-publishing has been so inspirational to many people. And all your books are just real pleasures to read. I'm, I'm glad I knew about you and was, was reading you back when. So, so You're now OG, I can say, James. I appreciate it. <laughs> and, and this is your second time on the podcast So after nine years. So welcome back. And uh, hopefully uh, it won't be another nine years before you, you come on again. Yeah, I don't know if I have that long, so let's not wait that long. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> All right, Thanks, see you, James. James. Thanks, man. Cheers. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.